You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. So, let's, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, before we dive into Luke. <clears throat> Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for the opportunity again to be together, to worship together, and to think together about what might be in the future for us as a church family. And also just to think together about what it maybe means to, um, to be pursuing and to be engaged in your mission of seeking to save those who are lost. We know that that's the central theme of the Gospel of Luke, which we have been working through for a couple of years now. And and, um, and we know that we're coming to the end of this gospel as we really see this picture of Jesus unpacking, unfolding in front of us. Or what an awesome picture. And I was even just thinking during worship as, a, as we were worshiping through that last psalm, just catching this picture of what it would mean not to just stand in a room and sing about you, but what it re- really would be like to sing right to you. And the first picture I got in my mind and in my, in my head was a picture of seeing to you on that cross as you suffered on my behalf. And then almost instantaneously, I just felt like your spirit gave me this picture of singing right to you, the resurrected Savior. Right from an empty tomb. What a picture that is. Not only of the extent that you would go to to save us, but also of your power over Satan's sin in the grave. And that is admittedly and confessionally what we need the most is to catch this dual picture of who you are. Our Savior, our suffering servant who gave himself on our behalf. Though we were but your enemies, you did this and then you rose powerful over Satan, sin, and the grave three days later. This is the hope that every one of us needs this evening. So Lord God, I just ask you that you would come and believing that you are already present among us, Lord God, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would transform our minds, that you would change our lives, not just merely by hearing a great sermon preached, maybe if it was great, but not just by hearing someone just stand on a stage and speak, but Lord God, that somehow we might actually encounter your very presence as we hear your word word unpacked. God, I pray that you would do that for us. I pray that you would save many through the hearing of this message. Your word reminds us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to to not just hear, but to also to respond to you as you speak in this passage. Lord, help us to be warned and to beware of, of, the, of the places in our lives that are, that are, that are unholy, that are uh, unbecoming of you, that are dishonoring to you. Help us to be aware and be warned about those spaces of our hearts and our lives, but then also help us to catch a glimpse and a picture of what you would ask us to be like, to be like you. And then God finally asked that you would um, empower us to then respond and follow through with that. To trust in you. To trust in our risen Savior. To believe in your work at the cross. And to be empowered by your Spirit. So God, I pray those things. 
asking God that you would take the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and that you would cause them, knowing that I bring nothing to this pulpit except for a bunch of thoughts in my mind and things in my heart. But really outside of that, I believe that I just, as, as Luther or Calvin said, bring nothing more than my own sin to this pulpit. So God, I pray that you would remove me and cleanse me and purify me and help me be a messenger of hope. Help my words to be acceptable in your sight. Help us to catch a glimpse of you, our rock and our redeemer. So God, God, we beg you to do those things. We believe that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Luke chapter 20 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 20, verses 45, starting in verse 45. And we're going to work our way into chapter 21. Let me read. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up. And saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. So the kind of the general movement or flow, if you will, of this text that I've just read to you is quite simply this. Beware of that and be like this. You think of your mind in your mind of people that you've known or people that you've seen that you would say to yourself, man, I want to be warned or beware of being like that person, but here's somebody I would like to be like. This is easy for us, I think, in this season as you watch the political mess unfold around us might be easier for us all to say, I don't know if I want to be like anybody in the political realm right now. As we look at that kind of mess going on around us, and I was listening to some friends of mine, some other pastor friends of mine from Omaha, speaking and talking in a podcast the other day, and one of the things that they wrestled with was this, in terms of the whole political thing that we find ourselves stuck in for the next couple of weeks here, um, this buddy of mine was saying this. He was like, man, I, I, well, the thing that I'm wrestling with is how do I even go to those voting booths and vote with a clear conscience for somebody that I could look at my children and say, I want you to be just like that person. He said, I'm wrestling with the fact that I cannot say that. I cannot say that. And so I'm not in front of you trying to pose one direction or the other or for anything politically other than to say that I think as Christians we almost need to wrestle with questions like this because in the scriptures Jesus has no problem saying be warned of being like this but be like that. I want to set the stage for a minute too with, with Jesus understanding where he is contextually. 
I mean, as you study the scriptures, it's important to understand the context of what you're reading and where you actually find Jesus. It's easy for us to read these warnings and these encouragements. It's easy for us to see these warnings and see these invitations and just kind of float past them and be like, yeah, I know that's something Jesus said. I know that's something that he did. But then miss the intensity of the situation. Luke chapter 9, if I remember correctly, uh, Luke explains to us that Jesus set his face like flint. Anybody ever had a piece of flint? You go out and you walk the railroad tracks, you'll find flint all over the place. It's a hard stone. He set his face like a stone to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go there. He made this decision and that's where he was headed and nobody was stopping him. And once again, he was not headed there for a a slick vacation to stay in a really sweet hotel or eat some fantastic food. He was headed to Jerusalem to simply die. This is like the third movement of Luke's gospel as we study our way through it. We know that Luke 19.10 is kind of the thematic flow all the way through the gospel of Luke. The Son of Man came, the first couple of chapters. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came from His perfect place, His clean place, His great place, right there next to the Father, right? He came from there to hear. So the Son of Man came to seek And that's what Jesus has been doing all throughout the second movement of Luke. And then as we come into this third movement, which is really the final week of his life, Jesus comes around the corner of this mountain and he sees Jerusalem. He begins to weep profusely over the lostness of that city. This is in that third movement to save. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. He's in that final week, in that third movement. Contextual this is where we are at in Luke's gospel, in his story. And then to drill down even further and get even deeper in the context of what's going on, you need to understand who he's talking to in this passage, right? Luke tells us in the very beginning of verse 45, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, this is kind of like me when I'm at Walmart and my kids are acting up, and in the hearing of all the people at Walmart, I say, stop doing that now before I kick your butt, right? Very similar. Only difference is he's not at Walmart. He's in the temple. He's in the church. So I want you to just lay this out. Like Jesus walks in here, gets a bit ticked because we're living wrongly. And he starts flipping tables and then sets up a pulpit and starts preaching. That's what's taking place. He's still standing at the very same pulpit, still speaking to the very same people that have opposed him this entire time. There are some who are opposing him and seeking to murder him. And then there are some who are hanging on his every word. This is a picture of where we need to be, is hanging on the very words of God, clinging to Christ as He speaks, as the living word into our lives, right? This is where Jesus says these things. Speaks to His disciples in the hearing of all the people standing in the temple, large gathering of people. And the simple message of this text is be warned be aware of the scribes be warned about your tendency to be just like them 
Be aware of the deep places of your heart where you begin to live and behave and desire like they do. And yet at the same time, then be like this poor widow woman over here. Growing up in my house as a young kid, my mom... um, Bless her soul, right? Uh, Coming up on three years anniversary of her death here in February. And so this time of year, I began to think more and more about her. Uh, Her birthday, I think, is this next week, I think on the 7th or something like that. And so usually around this time, I began to get flooded with thoughts of my mom even more and kind of remembering things and and, uh, in in no way wanting to throw her under the bus. But as a a young man, she had various different dudes in and out of the house. She was single. My dad had left. They were divorced. And she was very poor. Our family was very poor growing up. And so she, uh, she tried to find her, get her needs met in some relationships. And as I look back at the list of men that were in relationship with my mom when I was a child, there were some guys that my mom would look at me and say, be warned, don't ever be like that guy. And there were other guys that she would say, you know what, there's some things about that guy that you need to be like. We all understand this, whether you came from my background or not, we understand what it is to see an example of somebody that we would like to be like, an example of people that we would not want to be like as well. This passage is a warning. It's a warning and invitation to beware of the scribes and to be like this poor widow. In verses 45 through 47, and I know that Brandon touched on this last week, and I called him this week, and I said, Brandon, I know you touched on this passage, uh, but the reality is, is I can't preach the poor widow woman without also preaching the scribes again. And so you guys are kind of going to get it from me as well, even though you got it from Brandon last week. And there must be something to that. Maybe the Lord really wants to confront us as a people, and I will... I will tell you, I have not even listened to Brandon's message, so I have no idea what he said. I had planned to and wanted to because I want to be able to reference some of the things that he said and make sure I don't say some of the same things. So we'll just trust that the Holy Spirit leads us in the right way, right? Cool? We also know that when God says things twice to us, we should listen. This is, a, uh, this, is, this is definitely a principle throughout Scripture. And, and, and I would look at us as a church family and say, man, I, don't, I just don't know that we really wrestle with these things in this text so much. But maybe what God is wanting to say is, hey, let's get our blinders off a little bit and let's take a look at our tendencies to behave and to be like the scribes. And then let's catch a picture of what it means to be like the widow woman. So verses 45 through 47, Jesus simply teaches us to beware of the scribes. He warns us to beware of them because of their extravagant lifestyles, their pursuit of social status, their destructive appetites, and their religious rhetoric. All these things are leading to their impending doom, which is a really cool rock band, and I'm sure Seth would catch the connection. All these things for the scribes is going to lead to their doom. Jesus says, beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And these guys, like with all their kind of their self-righteous pomp, thought somehow that because of all their extravagant robes that they wore, that somehow they were more holy than or better than the common crowd. Jesus is saying, beware of this. Beware of this, my friends. Don't be this way. Let's not pursue a more extravagant lifestyle merely for the sake of being seen as being better than somebody else. 
Beware of your tendency to pursue a more extravagant lifestyle. He also says, beware of their pursuit of social status. He says it this way. He says, beware of the scribes who love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. This is the pursuit of social status. One of the things that infuriates me the most about our political election cycle right now is this massive pursuit of of, of elevating your own social status while, while trying to chop down the social status of someone else. It infuriates me because it's self-serving. The desire to be honored with a title in public is the pursuit of social status. The desire to have the best seat in the house. This is the pursuit of social status. It's the desire to be the honored guest at public events. These are the evidences of pursuit of social status. It's the pursuit of self-glory rather than God's glory. Beware of your desires deep down inside to pursue a greater social status. He also says, beware of their destructive appetites. Beware of their destructive appetites. He says it this way in verse 47. He says, beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses. They devour widows' houses. That phrase, devour widows' houses, simply means to consume something destructively. Something I love to consume is ribeye steaks with chili cheese fries. And probably hot wings on the side would be really good too. I love to devour those things. And it becomes kind of destructive later, if you know what I mean. (laughs) But... What Jesus is warning against here is not our appetite for some food. He's warning against our destructive appetites which take others and cause them to be the servants of our deep longings and desires. Feel lonely, so you go find someone to shack up with, right? You feel sad, so you go self-medicate with some drugs. And you feel at a loss, so you go spend more money. What Jesus is warning us against is these destructive appetites which can well up from deep within our souls. And these scribes, man, you think of these guys, right? Like these guys should have been model citizens. The scribes should have been the heroes of the story. They were religious leaders. Scribes knew how to recite the Bible better than even the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Because the scribes were the guys that wrote it, right? They they copied it. So, So these scribes knew an awful lot. They should have been the hero of the story. But the reality was, is they were devouring widows' homes. Now, we don't have an awful lot of commentary on exactly what that means. But I think the vision in my mind that I get is some ruthless prosperity preaching dude going into some poor widow's house and telling her, hey, hey, you should give all that you have to Jesus and he'll give it back to you a hundredfold. But some dude taking advantage of some poor woman is what it looks like to me. And then worse. The scribes saw God's people as a means of gain rather than a responsibility to serve. And listen, this doesn't just apply to the scribes and the leaders of the church, although that is the first 
primary point of application is to that crowd of people because the text explicitly speaks about leaders within a church. But the reality, as I do my math in the scriptures, is that as you and I come to follow Jesus, we get a place in the family whereby we also get the responsibility to lead and to love and to serve one another around us. And so while this text explicitly is speaking to leaders and Jesus is explicitly speaking to his disciples, there are also others who are hearing. So I think there are many different avenues by which you can say this doesn't just apply explicitly to leaders with titles. This implicitly applies to all of us. We need to be aware of our tendencies towards our destructive appetites and pursuing things which actually harm and hurt more than build up and create health. We need to be aware of that and be asking Jesus to help us to grow in those areas. These guys, these scribes engage their ministry with a sense of what's in it for them rather than what can I give? They were consumers, not investors. That's a question to ask yourself. Are you a consumer or are you an investor? Or are you an investor just merely so that you can find something else to consume? Because there are many of us who struggle with this. I will invest so much if I get this in return. And that's not the picture we see in the scriptures. These guys, these scribes, man, they were wolves. They were wolves instead of being sheeply shepherds. I say that intentionally. A shepherd and a leader within a flock of a church should smell like sheep. Meaning that your shepherds should not be so high and mighty and untouchable that you can't be around them. And you think about Jesus, once again, this theme of the Gospel of Luke, the Son of Man came. And who did he spend time with? The marginalized, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners. So much so that the religious leaders of that day actually accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. So Jesus, our great shepherd, Smelled like sheep. These guys, however, these scribes, man, they didn't smell like sheep at all. They didn't smell like sheep at all. They consumed the weak rather than serving the helpless. They attacked the lowly instead of protecting them. They stole from the needy instead of feeding them. Listen, if a church had pursued one of these guys in this day to be their pastor, these guys would have asked this question. Well, what's in it for me? What you got for me? What are you going to give me if I come and be your pastor? Rather than asking the question, how can I serve you? And I would simply say for us that this is, this is not just a warning that our leaders need to hear once again. This is a warning that all of us need to hear. The question needs to be, why would you serve? Why would you engage in serving? Because if it's merely to get something in return, then your motives need to get checked and recalibrated. And the only person that can do that is not me or you or anybody else. The Holy Spirit has to do that for you. Doesn't mean you need to back away from serving because your motivations were all wrong. It means you need to go to the Lord and confess and repent and ask Him to change you. Simple as that. Beware of your tendency to feed your own destructive appetite. 
Servant leadership is not about self-serving. It's about selfless and humiliating service of the God who gave His Son for us. That's the place that we serve from. It's from that very picture. I can tell you that I can test my own life. When I find myself getting frustrated with people, that's when I begin to realize I am not serving from a motivation of the gospel. I need to be reminded of this just as much as the rest of us in this room. Beware of your tendency to feed your own destructive appetite. Also, verse 47, I think Jesus warns us to beware of the scribes and their religious rhetoric. He says it this way. He says, beware of the scribes who for a pretense make long prayers. In other words, watch out for religious rhetoric or smooth talk or what I like to call Christianese. Religious leaders in this crowd, and I, and I think this is so applicable to us today. Really it is. Religious leaders of that day in that crowd had built an entire religious culture out of long and loud public prayers while openly opposing Christ. Don't forget that context. I've had so many, what I would say, probably well-meaning Christians come to me and say, well, pastors shouldn't pray so long. Pastors shouldn't preach so long. Look right here. Jesus even preaches against it. No, no. Let's go back to the text and look at it. The context of the text is simply this. People praying long prayers, preaching long sermons, merely for show, while living lives that were openly opposed to Christ. That is the issue that Jesus is addressing. And here's the deal, like every culture has its own language, right? I mean, cultures are basically built out of a certain people with certain interests, certain art forms like music and, and painting and certain job skills, as well as a certain language. Okay? So if I go to a football game, and this is one of the things that I find really interesting. Growing up, I wasn't into sports because the guys that my mom dated weren't into sports. And so I never understood all the language. Why is everybody getting so crazy because that guy just ran into that one end of the field with a ball? I don't understand what's going on. What the heck is a touchdown, right? Um, four quarters, what? Four, four, four quarters, what? I have no idea what you guys are talking about, right? It was, a, it was a foreign language to me. When we moved here to Hastings eight years ago, I was not a Husker fan. All of you guys can boo now. It's okay. I was not a Husker fan. I was not a football fan, period. I didn't know anything about football. But one of the things about Hastings, Nebraska, and the surrounding communities is that this is, this is a community that is deeply rooted in, in, in sports. Like, I think on one side, it's one of the biggest idols of our community. But on the other side, it's also one of the best places that we can also um, build healthy community. And so every culture has its thing, and it also has its language. And one of the things that I had to do was have somebody teach me about the football culture language so I understood what was going on. Oftentimes, we make this mistake in the church. So we get this religious rhetoric going and we think that it kind of makes us part of the in crowd while at the same time causing others to feel like they are ostracized somehow. And so I think this passage gives us a little bit to speak to that. Uh, we call this cultural anthropology, I think is the pretty big word. 
It just kind of discusses the idea of what it means to be missionaries in a culture that we live in. And part of that is understanding the Christian bubble we live in. Some of the things we say are like, hey man, I love you brother. I love you sister. Like, this is something the Christian church has said for an awful long time. And actually, over the hundreds of years and thousands of years now, the church has been in existence. There was actually a time when people thought that the church was full of incestuous relationships because everybody in the church bubble was saying, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. And you might be thinking, why is he making this point? Why is he belaboring this point so much? Because these scribes were supposed to be the guys that we looked up to. That's the entire point. And Jesus is saying, beware of them. They missed the boat. They forgot that they were supposed to be the servants within the community that created an understanding of our need for Christ, but instead created this little bubble of Christian language, so to speak, that totally separated them from everybody else, while at the same time living lives that opposed Christ totally. We do this. It's easy for us to do, and I think we need to be challenged in this, that we have an entire community and city around us that needs to hear of the love of Christ and the way that He has changed and transformed our lives. And Heaven forbid if we would ever get ourselves in a place where our Christian life is about some mere religious rhetoric and some mere religious or theological talk that makes sense to us, but it has no bearing whatsoever on the community at large. And then even worse, doing so while living in total opposition to the Lord. Like that's the challenge for us. It's, it's so multifaceted. I could spend the next hour here just talking about this one point, I think. So beware of a temptation within you to adopt religious rhetoric. And to learn a cultural language and then to speak it only for the purpose of appearing to be a part of that culture or even to be on the leading edge of that culture and then at the same time be destructive to the very culture in which you claim to want to be a part of is hypocrisy at its finest and hypocrisy is what Jesus is always confronting in the religious leaders of his day beware the temptation within you to adopt religious rhetoric that isn't backed up with a holy lifestyle so Jesus is warning us about here. Finally, finally in the end of verse 47, man, he's like, here's the reason. Like, that's a good question to ask. Why is Jesus warning us about all these things? That's a hermeneutical question of the text as you look at it. Why is he warning us about all these things? Why does it matter? Why is it such a big deal? Because these guys are doomed. And if you want the same doom that's coming for them, by all means, live that way. Jesus is saying, don't live this way because I don't want the same doom to come upon you. Beware the scribes, they will receive the greater condemnation. Their destruction is coming. And the interesting thing about this whole thing is that Jesus, the very one in which they oppose, the very one whom they seek to murder, the very one whom they actually eventually do murder, rises from the dead one day, right? Three days later, goes back to the throne. 
next to his father in heaven and someday will be returning. Love that passage. Quote it often. Jesus on a white stud of a horse, clothes drenched in blood, tattoo on the thigh, king of kings and lord of lords with an iron scepter in his hand, sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, you want to talk about a fine movie. This would be a sweet movie. Lightning bolts coming out of his eyes, makes war on those who were his enemies. Their doom is impending. That's why this is important. The cost of refusing to hear this, the cost of rejecting this message, the cost of rejecting what Jesus is saying here is doom. It's a gloomy message. That's a warning. <laughs> but the thing about warnings, as I've said often before, is that we oftentimes view warnings as super duper negative. Why? Why? Because I think in our culture, and in our families, we often have been disciplined and corrected in unhealthy ways. Some of the ways that I was corrected or disciplined as a young child was at the end of a leather belt or the end of a horse whip. This means that when somebody comes to me with a warning, I shrink in fear. But what Jesus explicitly says to us in the book of Hebrews is that God disciplines and corrects those who are his children because he loves them. You'd be an illegitimate child, a child who was not actually a child, a child who was not loved if God did not warn you or I. Therefore, the outcome is that when God warns me, it's not as though he's cracking this bullwhip over my head or snapping the belt because he's going to beat the crap out of me. What God is doing is he's loving me. And when God is warning you through this text, he's loving you. That should not constitute fear it should constitute joy because listen if you're sitting here and you're hearing this warning and you're heeding it and you're saying yeah man there's some places of me that i need that man i need the holy spirit to do some work on if you're hearing that you're hearing that because the holy spirit is enabling you to hear which means you're a child of god because there's no way that you could hear it your mind and your heart would be closed off to it like the scribes in this text you will walk out of this room and you will go back to the same way you were living before you walked in here your ears will be deaf to the warnings of God and you will not receive them in joy so the encouragement is this to receive the warnings of God with joy joy and encouragement think about your desire for for, for a more extravagant lifestyle or your pursuit of a higher social status. Contemplate for a minute even what destructive appetites you struggle with in your life. Think about how easy it is to project this external religious rhetoric that doesn't match the internal position of your heart. Think of the coming judgment and destruction that Jesus warns us about here. Jesus is simply warning us to beware of the scribes because of their extravagant lifestyles, their pursuit of social status, their, their destructive appetites, their religious rhetoric. He's warning us about all these things because all these things are what is leading to their doom. Beware of the scribes and be like the poor widow. This is the warning and the invitation of this text. The question is, what will you do with that warning and that invitation? Jesus moves on in this continued contrast and he gets into verses 1 through 4 of chapter 21 and he basically says, be like the poor widow. Be like the poor widow. 
Her poverty wasn't an excuse for selfishness, but instead it was a powerful motivator for greater generosity. Her gift was worth more than it was worth. And it was worth more than it was worth because it was given as a sacrifice rather than a leftover. You think about that for a minute. The gift that this woman gave was given sacrificially, not as a leftover. Her gift was given as an act of complete dependence and total trust. Be like the poor widow. As Jesus was speaking, Luke tells us that he looks up. He looks up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, verses 1 through 2. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Evidently, there were offering boxes in the temple, much like we do here in the back, for people to give their offerings to the Lord. And there were both wealthy people and poor people giving their offerings. One of the distinctions that Jesus makes in this passage, right? Oftentimes, we want to hide from that distinction. We want to hide from that distinction because we somehow put social status based upon amount of income or wealth. Jesus doesn't, doesn't worry about that. These people were coming, they're giving their offerings to the Lord. Specifically in this case, it was a poor widow woman who had nothing left to live on. She is an example of godly generosity for us. And she stands in stark contrast to the scribes that Jesus has been talking about and warning us about. Because even though she is poor, even though she is poor, she doesn't let her poverty become an excuse for closed-fisted management of her money. Her poverty actually becomes a powerful motivator for open-handed generosity. The invitation of this text is to be like the poor widow woman whose poverty was not an excuse for closed-fisted selfishness, but instead open-handed generosity. The thing about it for you and I is that when we don't have very much, it's really easy for us to start to clench our fists around what little we do have. And the problem with that is this. Your hands are closed. They're not open. And when your hands are not open, you cannot receive open-handed generosity. When my hands are open in generosity and in giving, trust me, you can't outgive God. You just cannot do it. There's no way you can't. Why? Because he owns everything. He's God. So when, you're, when, you're, when your hands are closed in selfishness because you're worried about making ends meet, the reality is that you are effectively cutting yourself off from what you could be receiving from the Lord. Second thing I see is in verse 3. I think her gift was worth more than it was worth. Her gift was worth more than it was worth. I got to tell you something. Christy mentioned to me this week that in one of her studies that she was doing with some of the ladies, that she came across this, uh, this statement. And I'm going to botch it totally, but it, it resonated with me. It stuck with me, not just because I'm a pastor, but also because I have to be reminded of this. I'm thinking about these eight points that are in this message that I'm preaching to you tonight. If you didn't know there were eight points, now you know there's eight points. And we're going to get it done in less than 45 minutes. That was arrogance, just so you know. <laughs> it, was, it was meant to elicit a laugh. <laughs> the statement that she, uh, she came across said something about the work of Christian leaders when they bring a message. Um, and the study that goes into it and the outline and all that is quite like packing up a suitcase and then unpacking that in front of you. 
And one of the things that we often do um, is we take that suitcase home and we stick it in the corner and we never remember it again. We never think about it again. And I am just as guilty of that. Like I think of all the commentaries that I read to prepare for things sometimes and I forget half of what was in those commentaries. I just miss it and I need to go back. My encouragement to you is to go back and check out some of what was packed in this suitcase for you. Not because I think it's great, um, but because I actually do think it's great. Not because I think I was great at putting it together, but because I think the Holy Spirit is saying some really good things in this passage, honestly. Her gift was worth more than it was worth. As Jesus observes this poor widow woman giving her two cents, while all the wealthy folks are dropping like large gold and silver coins in the offering boxes, he says, it says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Man, underline it, circle it, put stars around it, more than all of them. In other words, this poor widow's gift was worth more than it was worth. And it was worth more than it was worth because it was worth more than what everyone else gave altogether. It's too easy to compare our tiny little offerings. When you think about the offering you give of time, talent, treasure, and you think, man, so small, certainly somebody's got more to give. We fall into this comparison game of, man, that guy's got this, and I got that, and they gave this, or they gave that, and I'm only, and so on and so forth. We wind up getting this comparison game. What Jesus is doing is he's flipping this comparison game up on its head, and he's saying, don't live there, because this woman gave more than everybody else. And what she gave was worth more than all the gold and the silver in the world combined because she gave it out of a pure heart. The invitation of this text is to simply give generously without regard to the physical value of the gift because even the tiniest gift given from the right heart is more valuable than all the gold and silver in this world combined. And he literally says what she gave was worth more than it was worth. And in fact, it was worth more than all of them gave together. Her two cents was worth more than all the billions that came in through that offering box. How can he say that? Because he saw her heart. He saw her heart through the activity of her life. Her gift was also sacrificial, not left over. I think this is a real amazing point of the text as well. He says, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. In other words, while some wealthy people are like giving out of their leftovers, which is common for all of us to say, I'm going to pay all my bills, and then this little bit that's left over, I'm going to give a little bit of that to God. Right? It's a common practice, and they were doing it then just like we do now. While those wealthy people were giving out of their leftovers, this poor widow woman was giving sacrificially. She gave until it hurt. She gave all that she had to the Lord. She didn't pay her bills and then give the leftovers to God. She gave all that she had to live on to the Lord. Like the invitation of this text for us is to give generously. To give generously and sacrificially to God. Instead of giving our leftovers to him. Why? Because God did not give his leftovers to you and I. That is what motivates us to give. It's not because we go, man, the pastor says I got to give. It's not like, man, I got to give because I see that other person giving. 
It's not giving grudgingly. It's giving willingly with an open hand because you have stood there with your hands raised to God in worship of Him because you catch this picture of a Savior on a cross walking out of a tomb three days later. He did not give the leftovers to you. He gave out of His abundance. That's how I'm enabled to give is because I catch that picture. Let me tell you, I've struggled with this. I've struggled with this. You see how jacked up I get? Why do I get jacked up? Because I know that my God didn't give out of the leftovers. Man, that's got to get somebody excited. That don't get you excited. I'm concerned for your heart. Right? Right? God didn't give out of his leftovers. He gave until it hurt. He gave so much that it cost his only son his life. He went to the ends of the world for you and I. That's why Jesus can, with all integrity, stand here and say, man, those dudes gave from their leftovers and their gift was worthless. But she gave, she gave out of the abundance. It's worth more than all of their gifts combined. The invitation of this text is to not only be like the poor widow woman in our giving, but also to be like God in our giving. We're invited to model Christ in our giving. Final point is this. That her gift was an act of dependence and total trust. It's an act of complete dependence and total trust upon God. Don't forget that this poor widow gave out of her poverty. And out of her poverty, she put in all that she had. Now, now, listen. Listen close. If you're sleeping, wake up. If you walk out of here and you say, Pastor Joe said, I've got to give all my money to Jesus, that would be true. It would be true. But I'm not telling you to walk out of here and sign over your bank account to our church so that we can pay our bills so that you get a hundredfold in return because those guys that prostitute the gospel on TV, they got theirs coming. Agreed? But what Jesus does ask for is everything. He doesn't ask you to give a little bit. He asks you to give him everything. Everything about you is given to him because he gave everything of himself for you. That's what Jesus asked for. She put in all that she had to live on. Her gift was an act of complete dependence and total trust in the Lord as her provider and king. How else could this poor widow put everything she had to live on into the offering box? How could she do that unless it was out of the outflow of her complete dependence and complete trust, her total trust and complete dependence? This was how she was enabled to do so because she was completely dependent, totally trusting upon her God as her savior and king. She was unable to do so. <laughs> By the way, I love this line. Cannot serve both God and money, as will serve one while hating the other. A person would rather hate money and love God because money is like a bad politician. <laughs> money is like a bad politician. Money is like a bad politician. Why? It's like a bad politician simply because it makes promises that it doesn't follow through with and then it comes back and demands more of you. That's why money is like a bad politician. That's why you cannot serve both God and money. You can only serve God with your money. 
So serve God with your money. The invitation of this text is to be like the poor widow woman and to give our gifts as acts of complete dependence and total trust in our Savior and King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Depend upon Him, trust in Him. He will not let you down. It's the one thing that I continue to remember in this season that we are living in is this. The day after the election, you've all heard, the day after the election, you know who's still going to be on the throne? Jesus. Ain't nothing going to change that. Nothing's going to change. I saw this stupid commercial on TV the other night that said something about one of our candidates, that like, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and coming apart at the seams. The world is coming apart at the seams because of this candidate. Hello, seriously, you're going to hang that on that person? Guess what? The world ain't coming apart. And when it does come apart, it only comes apart because the hand of my sovereign God said it's time to come apart because he's coming back to put it all back together once and for all. Amen. Right? I'm just going to hang my hat on that because everything else is worthless. Jesus is where we place our hope. We completely depend upon Him. We totally trust Him. And I want to wrap this up because I need to wrap this up. So I'm going to invite our musicians back forward. And as I wrap it up, what I want you guys to think about, even though there's distraction of musicians moving around, so if you need to close your eyes and pretend like you're not sleeping, that's fine, do that. Like, this is a good time to have your eyes closed and your head down. So go ahead and do so, if that would help you focus on what I'm about to say. I want you to think about Jesus in light of this contrast that I've been um, building for us. This contrast between the scribes and this poor widow woman. Again, Jesus is our only hope. This is the point of the message of the gospel. Jesus is always the point of the message of the gospel for us. And if we miss that, we miss the whole thing. We have no hope in doing this right. Take these eight things that I've, that I've communicated to you. The four things that you should be aware of and be warned about. And the four things that you should be invited to do. Make that your new list of commandments. And what you're going to find out is you will fail. There is no hope in getting this right. The only hope we have is in Jesus himself. The only hope we have is found in the shadow of the cross of Christ. Man, if you're here and you're thinking that you could do these things, that you could resist all those bad things, or that you could receive this invitation to do all these good things, you think you could do any of that without first resting in the finished work of Christ? You've missed the point, and I don't want that. Don't leave here with some moralistic list of do's and don'ts. That's the failure within the church today. As we look at behaviors and we think, if I can just manage that behavior a little bit better, I'd be a little bit more holy for God. And that's not the message of the text at all. Not the message of the text whatsoever. The message of all of Scripture is to drive us back to the foot of the cross so that we might depend upon Christ alone. So when Jesus says that we need to beware of the scribes, he says this with absolute integrity. Why? He says it with absolute integrity because he himself wasn't like the scribes. Think about Jesus. Jesus lived below his means. He didn't pursue social status. He came to serve and not be served. His lifestyle matched his ministry. And, and he will return someday to reward, to reward the wicked and the righteous. According to their opposition or their surrender to God. Jesus also tells us to be like the poor widow woman, right? 
Poverty wasn't an excuse for Jesus. He looked at your poverty and he looked at my poverty and he didn't allow that to be an excuse for him not to give himself for you and I. It was instead a powerful motivator for him to give himself generously on your behalf. When Jesus looks at you and I, even though we measure ourselves against each other and measure ourselves against what we have or do not have or can do or cannot do, Jesus looks at you and I and he says, you and I are worth more than we are worth and that's why he was willing to give himself at the cross because you and I are worth more than we are worth when God looks at you that's what he says he would give anything to give you the opportunity to be right with your father in heaven and then now he calls you to depend upon him and to trust in him totally this is how we live our lives in a way that we receive this warning about the scribes and this invitation to live like this poor widow. We receive that warning. We receive that invitation by looking at the cross of Christ. Because it is the cross of Christ alone that we find everything that we need. Because Jesus did it for us. Which leads me into communion. The reason that we engage in communion together is because we celebrate Jesus' work at the cross together. It's his body that was broken, his blood that was shed, that makes us family. If you're here and you've believed that, then you are family. If you're here and you don't believe that, then my prayer is that you become part of the family. And that work is done by the Holy Spirit. And so my prayer is the Holy Spirit would speak to you about that. And so we'll engage in communion here as we wrap up. There's going to be a few near the front that would like to pray with you as well. Thanks for letting me preach. I love you guys. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for our time together in the scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would help us to catch a greater picture and experience of what it means to be aware of those tendencies of, of our heart um, where we are like the scribes and, and to be then like the widow woman. Help us to trust in you completely, to depend upon you completely to catch this greater picture of you not giving out of the leftovers, but giving out of your abundance so that we might come and follow you. God, I pray that you would make that real for us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, let's worship. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.